This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week's show is a lovely, eclectic trio of arts chats. Theatre, courtesy of Columbia Entertainment Company, film by way of the True False Film Fest, and the world of classical orchestral music thanks to the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. So as it's a busy show, let's head out. We'll start this week's tour with theatre. Between 1982 and 2005, Pulitzer Prize-winning American playwright August Wilson wrote 10 plays that collectively are known as the Pittsburgh Cycle or the American Century Cycle. The plays chronicle aspects of the heritage and experience of the African-American community, with each play taking place in a different decade of the 20th century. The Pittsburgh Cycle is a phenomenal, towering work of theatre, and as one New York Times critic said, the scope of this accomplishment was matched by the resonant singularity of his voice, full of the lyricism of black vernacular and grammar, which is, quote, such rich, meaty poetry and so beautifully black. Of those 10 plays, probably the two most well-known, thanks to Hollywood interpretations, are Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Fences, which was released in 2016 and earned Denzel Washington an Oscar nomination and Viola Davis an Oscar. And it is Fences which will have its Columbia stage debut at Columbia Entertainment Company for three weekends in February, directed by and now thanks to COVID, featuring Richard Harris, who is with us this evening. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts, Richard. Well, hello, my one of my favorite Colombians in the world, Diana. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Ditto back to you. I always love having you on the show because you have such an interesting take on everything we talk about. And I know you are something of a scholar of August Wilson's works. And his Pittsburgh cycle is a subject that we could easily take a year of shows to cover. It's so deep and rich. But tell me about what August Wilson means for you as an African-American actor. Absolutely. First of all, I'd like to say I'm more of a fanboy than anything. (laughs) And being a fanboy of August Wilson's means that anything online or in the library, I'm always picking up with his name on it. It's like I search it out. And um, I'm just gravitated to it and because I am such a, a lover of his prose, and I'm such a lover of his thinking, and I'm such a lover of him loving his culture, which is, I can say, is my own. And so, yeah, I'm a big fanboy of August Wilson. And what was the question? (laughs) (laughs) I think you answered it. What does it mean for you? You know, what does his works mean for you as an African-American actor? It means everything. And, and, And what I mean by that is that, um, When I was growing up, there was just so much that you could see on television or in any media that had anything to do with African-American. It was just it was just so little that was being said. And I mean, you know, it it was the time we lived in and we would run to the TV. 
whenever somebody would come on Flip Wilson or Red Fox or even later when it was Richard Pryor, or anybody would be on TV, Soul Train, whatever. It, we gravitated to the TV because it was so unlike for us to see ourselves in that medium. And when, when I found August, which I was in college when I found August in the 80s, it made me realize what it was that I was missing and what it meant to me and what kind of uh, development that I was getting where it was all coming from. And because of that, I fell in love with him telling the story of me because it was like, oh, that's why I'm like that. Oh, that's why I like to do that. Oh, that's why I don't like doing that. It was like opening doors to, okay, it's okay for me to be this human being that I am because it was so many people that were like me that I didn't even know they were like me. And so that's why I love him so, because he opened up my eyes to who I am, as an, not only as a, an American, but as a human being. That's why I love August Wilson. Did you ever meet August Wilson? No, I didn't. I never have. But you know something? I was at a thing that he was at, and I never got an opportunity to go up the stairs. I was at this thing, and he was he was doing this speech or something upstairs at the Hyatt or something that was in um, Los Angeles in 2004, somewhere around there. And I wanted to go up there, but I was actually performing with, I forgot what group, downstairs from him. And I wanted to go up there. That's the closest I ever got to him. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Damn. That's that's the way it goes. Yeah. Well, Fences is the sixth play in the cycle taking place in the 1950s. But Wilson did not write the plays chronologically. So it's actually the third one that he wrote within the Pittsburgh cycle. Talk to me about why you chose Fences over any of the others. Why not start with Gem of the Ocean, which is set in the first decade of the 20th century and work your way through them? Why Fences? Well, to be honest, it was because Columbia Entertainment Company chose Fences first. Of course, you know, everybody knows of Fences as August's hugest and most immense, most uh, dramatic, most traditional play. You know, it has so much gravitas. It's ridiculous. And it's because it's like they compare it to so many of the great American playwrights. And I mean, they even compare it to Shakespeare. So that's one of the reasons why you want to do Fences. But if I had my pick... It would have been something a little bit more rebellious, but I love Fences. I love Troy. I love Rose. I love Corey. I love Bono. I love those characters. And so it wasn't hard. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a either or situation. It was like, yeah, whatever you say. Well, Fences centers around Troy Maxson, a 53-year-old man who struggles to provide for his wife and son in the 1950s before the civil rights movement has become a force. Troy used to be an amazing baseball player, but well before the major leagues would consider recruiting black players. And so Troy has had to settle into the life of being a trash collector, barely scraping by, seeing his dreams die and All of this causes a lot of turmoil and frustration, especially in his relationships. Richard, tell us about the people we meet in Fences. Well, they are um, what I call a typical African-American family in 1950 living on the northeast part of America, which is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it's a portrayal of their existence 
in that space. And uh, it's one family and their friend, Bono. And uh, the family makeup is a mixed family. You know, it's not just one father and one mother. Or, you know, it's more than that. But they're all blood relatives. Troy being the patriarch, which is uh, one of those things that not very many people understand, that there were patriarchs in the black community and the black families, and he was one. And then there's the matriarch, Rose, who not only is she strong, but she's vulnerable. And most people don't understand that black women can be vulnerable, even though they are always put in that you got to have strength position. And then there's the kids who are fighting just like anybody for um, attention and respect, and they rebel. And that is the makeup. And that's Corey and his brother, Lyons, his half-brother, and his half-sister, Raynell. And then there's the friend, Bono, who is basically family because of um, how close he is to uh, his friend, Troy. They might as well be brothers. And then my favorite, There is Gabriel, who is Troy's brother, who sacrificed his health for this country. He was injured in the in the war. Yeah. And it's a it's a tale about that as well, of how we treat our veterans and how we treat those injured and how we don't treat them as human beings and how we treat them as citizens in this society. So it gets a little deep. Yeah. Troy is a, a complex character, and, and whilst he has reason to elicit our sympathy, he often also makes me want to shout, damn, man. He thwarts his son's dreams. He cheats on his wife. <sighs> There's a lot that's tough to forgive him for. What's your relationship with him? Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you this. He looks a whole lot like my dad. And and what I mean by that, I'm not I'm not disparaging my father. I'm just saying that he looks a whole lot like a real person. And that person that I'm staring at is a real life human being with all the flaws intended. And that's one of the beauties about Troy. He is exactly what he is. And he is to be sometimes uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to say hated, but yeah, OK. And he is to be loved and he is to be pushed away or pulled in. But that's what I like about him. He's a real life African-American, American, 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 American father. And so, yeah, he's got all those flaws. And yes, he's done some wicked stuff like most fathers have done. And he's done some good stuff like most fathers have done. And he's done some bad stuff like most fathers have done. So... Yeah, he's real. Talk to me about Troy's relationship with his son, Corey. It's a lot like the relationship that he had with his own father. And it brings to mind that apple and tree thing. And that's the relationship. Even though, I mean, there are certain things that are revealed that you'd be like, oh, my goodness, why do you feel that way about your son? But then what else is revealed is why. Why he's like that. Not to excuse him, not to excuse the way he feels about his son, because he sometimes he feels jealousy for his son. And sometimes he feels anger and sometimes he feels like uh, frustration. Sometimes he feels all kinds of stuff for his son. And that's one of those things that we all black, white, brown, green, Jewish, 
Catholic, Baptist, Buddhist, we all have those same kind of feelings about our fathers. It's just so much like what we all go through. And then to have an African-American man say, me too, I do that too. You say that Troy reminds you of your father. Does Troy's relationship with Corey remind you of your relationship with your father? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of those things that Corey says in the play. You walk in the room and I feared you. I have no idea why. Sometimes I knew. But it's like you walk in the room and you just, everything, you just intimidate me. I, it seems like everything I want to do is to please you. Everything about me is to make you say, good job. And if I don't get it from you, then I am wounded. And yet I had that relationship with my father. I'm not afraid to say it. Yeah, I had that same relationship with my father. I, I loved everything about him. I looked up to him, but then I despised things about him. And I also knew that... Uh, I had those same tendencies in my personality. I would love to have you read one of the short um, monologues, I guess, by Troy. Would you tell us which one you've chosen and explain a little bit about the context? Okay. Well, this particular monologue I actually did in a competition in Los Angeles. Uh, I didn't win, but I liked it a lot. And the reason why I liked it is because the dialogue is based on something that's uh, very popular in my culture and in a lot of cultures, but especially African-American culture. And that's the entertaining uncle or entertaining grandfather who sits around and he what they call lies. In other words, he he tells these big, fat, fanciful stories of what he's done or who he's seen or what he's about. And it's it's one of those things that kept people um, entertained, especially during the time before television and air conditioning. That's why everything takes place out in the backyard in fences, because it's before air conditioning or any of those fine things. And so outside on the backyard is where all the entertainment is. So this is it's based on that lying tradition. And so that's why I liked it. So, and that's the reason I chose it. <clears throat> I ain't worried about death. <laughs> oh, no, I done seen him. I done wrestle with him. Look here, Bono. I looked up one day, death was marching straight at me like soldiers on parade. The army death was marching straight at me. It was the middle of July, 1941. I got real cold, just like I, it been winter. Seemed like Deaf himself was reaching out and touching me on my shoulder. He touched me just like I touched you. I got cold as ice, Deaf standing there grinning at me. I say, uh, uh, what you want, Mr. Deaf? You be wanting me? You done brought your army to be getting me? I looked him dead in the eye. I wasn't fearing nothing. I was ready to tangle just like I'm ready to tangle now. The Bible say, be ever vigilant. That's why I don't get but so drunk. I got to keep watch. Well, Deaf standing there staring at me, carrying that sickle in his hand, finally say, you won't bound over for another yard. See, just like that. You won't bound over for another yard. I told him, bound over hell. Let's sell this now. It seemed, it seemed like he kind of fell back when I said that, and all the cold ran out of me. And I reached down, and I grabbed that sickle, and I threw it just as far as I could throw it. And me and him commenced the wrestling. We wrestled for three days and three nights. I can't say where I found the strength from. Every time it seemed like he was going to get the best of me, I reached down deep inside myself, and I found the strength to do him one better. 
I ain't making nothing of this up now. I'm telling you the facts of what happened. I wrestled with death for three days and three nights, and I'm standing here to tell you about it. All right. At the end of the third night, we done weakened each other to where we could hardly move. Death stood up, throwed on his robe. He had a white one with a hood on it. He throwed on that robe and went looking for that sickle. Say, I'll be back. Just like that. I'll be back. I say, well, you're going to have to find me. I wasn't no fool. <laughs> I wasn't going to go looking for him. Death ain't nothing to play with. And I know he's going to get me. I know I'm going to have to join his army, his camp followers. But as long as I keep up my strength and see him coming, as long as I keep up my vigilance, he going to have to fight to get me. <laughs> I ain't going easy. A lot of the power of Wilson's work is in his patterns of speech, in the vernacular he uses. And I want you to talk a little bit about the lyrical voice of his work. He, Wilson said himself, I didn't always value the ways black people talked. I thought in order to make art out of it, you had to change it. How did the way that he wrote, focusing on the beauty of black vernacular, how did that change what came after Wilson? And, and, and what does that mean to you, that lyrical, hearing your own voice? Okay, first of all, my grandmother being a school teacher, boy, she could not <laughs> stand it if you said ain't. If you said ain't, finna, gonna, if you said that, oh, she would just, she would chastise you and correct you quickly. And so I went through most of my um, early life being chastised about the way that I was talking to my friends and about the way that my grandfather and my uncle were talking to me. I got chastised for it, so I spent a lot of time correcting them in my head. Like they talk to me and I'd say, oh, you, you, that ain't the way that said. Oh, you just so country. Oh, you are <laughs> so country. You are so sour. You are such a bohunk. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'd spend a lot of that doing that. And then I picked up books that uh, tried to uh, give me the vernacular and tried to give me the dialect like Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. You know, you can find Black Jim, you know. A white man trying to tell you how Black Jim was talking and stuff like that. And it sounded kind of affected. But I knew where it was coming from. And then there was a couple of people before August. And I could see that was actually part of our culture because that's where we were. We were a people that were enslaved. And we came here with different languages and dialects and stuff. And we had to muddy them all up to where we all being of different dialects and, and uh, speech, we had to make them all make sense to us. And so it was all muddied up and all of it became our own language in a language. And so um, inside my soul, it seems that I know what gonna means. I know what gone mean. I know what uh, finna mean and fixin' to mean. I know what mama means. I know what Madea means. I know where that comes from and I know it feels good in my soul when I say it because it's way deep down in me and it has a lot to do with my survival. So I think that's why it rings so true and I think that's why it's so poetic because it pulls on all of those things that make art and aesthetic what it is. It's the beauty of it and that's something that you feel. 
you feel the beauty of it because it resonates inside you as being truthful and honest and raw. So I think that's what August captured in his dialect in writing his plays. He's a poet, so he knows. You know, he sat down at somebody's diner and he listens to some old man talk to him and he said, oh man, this has rhythm. This has rhyme. That's why I call it the first hip hop. Because not only is it telling the truth, but it's telling the truth a certain way, you know? Well, tell me a little bit about the cast you have in your production here and the casting process. Mm -hmm. Fences demands a lot of its actors. They're very powerful characters and the language is very specific and very powerful. And you need to find the right actors to give the play its power, which is a lot harder in a small regional city than a big metropolitan area. So tell me a little bit about your cast. And of course, I know that now because of you've lost your lead actor to COVID, Mm -hmm. that you are now stepping into that role, which must be heartbreaking for the actor. It's, it's, oh, it's just so much work. But <laughs> now you're talking about something I want to talk about, <laughs> and that's the cast. We're talking about the cast. I love these people, and I love these people because they have such courage. They have such courage because this is an immense work. This is no joke. This is like Shakespeare. And the people that signed up to do this have put themselves out there. You know what I'm saying? They've put themselves out there to actually try to tell this story with this format and this platform. And so I am so grateful for them and I am so in love with them. And um, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. But I think that the way they embrace it, the passion that's going on and because, you know, they know this culture. So it's not it's not hard if you just. If you think of yourself and just release yourself and be alive with it and not put on any airs, then it's not hard for you to find the dialogue because it comes kind of natural a little bit. And there's going to be some uh, some paraphrasing, you know, which is kind of like a no, no in some theaters. But because it's so close to um, the dialect that, you know, that you've grown up with, you might be able to uh, get past it and get it more perfect. Did you know when people watched in the room for casting, did you immediately think, yes, you're Rose, yes, you're Gabe, you're Bono? Was it immediate to you? Yeah. You know, I do that all the time. And I think that's because I'm such a fanboy of August <laughs> that when I meet people, I've already cashed in, in, in August. I don't care if you're black, white or orange. I've already cashed you in an August Wilson play <laughs> when I meet you. You know what I'm saying? So it was like when I met my roses. I have two roses. I have Rose, who is Carla Teague, and then I have her understudy, who is Marcia Collins. Now, Carla Teague, I saw immediately as Rose. When I saw Marcia Collins, I said, oh, you are Ma Rainey. When I saw her, I was like, oh, you are Ma Rainey. I can see her. But then she tried out. Then she auditioned. I was like, you know, you could do this. You could actually do this if you wanted. And so... I cast them in that role. Now, my first choice for Troy was Rodney Sheely, who is a minister at Second Missionary Baptist Church. And Second Missionary Baptist Church has the illustrious Dr. Ruffin as its pastor. So they are known throughout this city as putting on some of the most wonderful 
plays within the church. They are known for it. So Rodney Sheely is from that, that experience. And so when I saw him, the first thing I thought was, man, we need to get you in uh in this as Troy, before you age out, like Denzel Washington said, oh man, I was about to age out, so I need to play <laughs> Troy real fast before I aged out, because you know, he's supposed to be 53, you know, that kind of thing. So I was like, no, Rodney needs to do this right now, because that's the feather in his cap. And then, of course, the tragedy is he got COVID, and so he's not there anymore. But my Bono came from, comes from this area who is, he was actually one of the most talented people in this area as far as musicianship. He's got this TikTok following. I mean, he's hilarious on TikTok. He's got this thing, and his name is Derek Inyard. Derek Inyard is one of the best drummers here, one of the best vocalists as far as singing is concerned. I mean, just all around, he's just an entertainer at the wazoo. Then my Lions, he's this, now he's the one in the raw. He's like this 6'4" dark and handsome looking like he should be on Bridgerton <laughs> character that I got him signed up with a modeling agency and he's just taken off and he is lions straight away. He's got that kind of swag, you know what I'm saying? So it was, it wasn't hard to, to cast him. Now, Corey, I actually met Corey when I did dream girls here at CEC the first time, the first year I was here and Corey was part of the cast and I knew right then our conversation from Jump Street was, man, you are Corey. I told him that straight away. I said, you are Corey. I think I tried to give him the book, but I gave it to Carla instead. But I tried to give him the book to read it because I knew he was going to be Corey. And when he showed up for auditions, I just lit up. I was like, oh, this is going to be so (laughs) easy. Now, Gabe just happened up on me. I went to a, a night rehearsal that one of the guys here, Josh Ronald, does for soul. He has this soul explosion, like a jam session. And one of the guys that was there, I was talking to him in a corner and I said, man, you know, you could be Gabe. I said, I, no offense. I said, but you got that kind of thing that you're not afraid. You know what I'm saying? It seems like you got those eyes that you're not afraid to go Go places, you know what I'm saying? And Gabe, you have to go places to be Gabe because Gabe is actually uh, somebody has been harmed in the war and he's not all there. He's got issues. And I think that you can do it. And that was my man, Ashante Taylor. Oh, man, I knew it right away that he was going to be Gabe. And so I actually didn't even audition him. I just asked him to be Gabe for me. And he said, yes. And so that's my Gabe. Now. CPS put me together with my Raynell. This little girl, <laughs> I met her doing a CPS special about music, uh, getting involved in band and, and choir and uh, orchestra and stuff. And they did this, this little thing, this little short where I was Mr. Music and she was the girl trying to be in the band, whatever, and we became real good friends. But what I found out is how special Layla Love Lady was. Layla Lovelady is my Raynell. She's playing a 12-year-old, but she could probably play an 8-year-old or a 6-year-old or maybe even a teenager. She's just that good. And I mean, it's her subtle work is just so wonderful that I know we're going to see a lot more of her. And so that's my cast. And I am so excited to talk about them because that's the reason why I am doing this. And that's the reason why I'm so excited about doing it is because of those people. 
and their commitment and their voices being heard and all of the devotion and all of the prep that we've done together during this COVID thing. We've been shut down twice by COVID. We've been isolated from people because we had it in our midst. We've been masked on stage the whole time so you can't actually see anything but eyes. And these people have just soldiered on like a theatrical actor's army. We will not be moved. We will go forward. We will do this. And I am just so happy to have them. Well, I cannot wait to see the show. Columbia Entertainment Company's production of the August Wilson play Fences opens on February the 3rd and runs for three weekends, concluding on Sunday, February the 20th. To find out more, visit cectheatre.org. And Richard Harris, I am so looking forward to seeing your production of Fences. Um, Thank you so much for making time to chat this evening. Thank you, my favorite Colombian, for having me. (laughs) (laughs) So nice to talk to you, Diane. Thank you so much. True-False Film Fest 2020 will go down in history, local history at least, as being the last event before the world closed down. We knew that there was a virus circulating and that people were getting sick, but that first weekend in March 2020, we were just all focused on experiencing the world through documentary, going to parties and washing our hands thoroughly. And I remember how a shiver went through the fest when the news started circulating that South by Southwest had been cancelled. That weekend, we were at the very front edge of the pandemic, and it was just two days later on the Tuesday after True False that we all went into freefall and the world, as we thought we knew it, disappeared. And now it is two years later, and although everything could have changed, we are flawed creatures, and so we're still living in pandemic world. But I am hoping that maybe True False 2022 is a sort of bookend to the pandemic proper and that brighter days are ahead. It will certainly feel a little different this year than in all those pre-2020 years, and I'm feeling a little trepidatious, but with proof of vaccination or negative PCR test required and masks mandated, we should be able to fest safely. And here, with at least some of the answers and some enticements to fest, is Ragtech Film Society's co-director, Barbie Banks. Hello, Barbie. Hello. That gave me the chills. (laughs) (laughs) It is weird. I mean, I've just been thinking about it, this bookend idea of this space in between, this strange two years and how true false is just so for me just so locked into the memory of that yeah I agree I mean I remember learning about South by Southwest that year and not believing it I was just like no that doesn't happen they don't cancel one of the largest film festivals in our country and then I mean it was the first of everything to be canceled it was I really hope this fest is, we know it's going to be a rebuilding year for us, but I do hope it is a uh, something for our community to get us on the other side of this. Well, I cannot imagine the hoops you are all jumping through to make this year's fest happen, especially as it feels like the world is operating on a week by week basis, which makes planning even more challenging. Tell us about the protocols you have in place. One of the things that we try to do is guess human behavior. <laughs> That's been impossible this year. And so we have a 
great committee that we put together of doctors and professionals in the community that are helping us determine what we can do to have a safe fest. And we went through the checklist of, we know masks are really safe. We know that being up to date on your vaccinations makes it safer and giving people a little distance makes it safer. And so those are the big things that we're doing. And we're hoping that the people who feel comfortable enough to come, and I get that there's some people who aren't there yet, but that it's going to feel like a normal festival year for them with indoor films and parties and music and events to go to. I recall that in 2020, the True False team had to deal with some pretty unpleasant emails and calls from people after the event who were unhappy that the fest had gone ahead as they felt it was endangering the community. Are you dealing with any of that again this year? Not as much as we were. I think there's people who are exhausted by this whole thing, who are just telling us I'm not going to come until 2023 and other people who are just waiting to get closer to the fest. We know that we bring people from all over the world to Columbia, and that has a risk with it. And so we've been very clear that we're um, offering testing to those people who are coming, asking them to be tested before they come. We have a great donation from Flo's Pharmacy that's allowing us to have tests in all the hotel rooms for people when they arrive so that they can test throughout the weekend just to, even if they're boosted and vaxxed, you know, we know that there's a risk. And so we're doing as much as we can to keep our community safe while still having a great festival. And I hope we showed last year that we know how to do that with an outdoor fest. And we followed lots of rules that um, were probably overkill at the point that the fest happened last year, but that we do have public safety in mind. And it's not just about us getting to have a fest. We want to do right by our community. Talking about people waiting till 2023, I'm expecting to see a lot fewer people in attendance than in past years. I mean, we only just purchased our passes because we were a little on the fence. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, we both felt that supporting the fest and ragtag was more the most important thing. But thinking back over previous years, there are a lot of older people who usually attend. And I'm guessing that, as you say, many of them may sit out this year. What are sales looking like for this year? What are you expecting? Yeah, so we lowered the number of passes that we would sell to give a buffer room so that you're not, I think people can picture that opening night jubilee where you're packed in the Missouri theater and we don't want it to feel that way this year. And so we have lowered that number. Um, Past sales are, they're down compared to what we thought would happen. We do expect to continue to see a rise over these next few weeks. So I think I keep liking it to the first few years of the fest where like, it's going to sort of feel that you're the insider who knows about it and there'll be extra room around you as you're watching your films. And some of that is intentional and some of it is hesitancy from the community. And another thing we're doing is we are doing individual ticket sales prior to the fest. And so if you don't want to buy a pass and maybe you just want to check out one film because that feels like enough risk, you can buy a ticket and come see that specific film and, I don't know, it's, it's going to feel different, but I do think the people who come and who are supporting us are going to be excited about the lower number because it's going to feel like you have access when in a, quote, normal year, that's been harder to get for some people. Tell me a little bit about venue capacities. Are you using all the same venues as in the past? And to what extent are you required to space people out? 
So we are not required to do anything that's very different from last year when the health department had so many rules for us. And this year, I do think they're exhausted also, but there's no real regulation for us. So that's why we formed that committee of advisors for us to help guide us through that. And so we are not using all the same venues. You'll notice when our list of films come out and the schedule come out that we are not using the Globe Theater. Jesse Hall will not be used this year. And uh, the Forest Theater, which is normally a movie venue, and this has been kind of in the works for many years, is going to be switching to a, a venue where we do our synapses, which is the film adjacent stuff. So panels and some experimental stuff, campfire stories, those sort of things. And so the venues that we are using, it depends on the venue, but we have lowered capacity um, in all of those Cutting something by 20% in little ragtag feels very different than in the Missouri theater. So it's a venue by venue basis of what the capacities are in each one. But none of them are at 100%. No Jesse Hall. Yeah, yeah. We are rebuilding from last year. So we were lucky enough to have our fest in 2020. 2021 was... in ways it felt like we didn't get to have our fest because it was so different from what we normally do. And so this year is a rebuilding year. And with our numbers and being good stewards with our finances, we feel that not having Jesse on board is going to be the right, right call. So we'll still use it for our education screening that happens with CPS because there's enough sophomores to fill that, but um, it will be offline this year for us. I know we have talked before about there being generally fewer films circulating right now and Mm -hmm. and through the next year because so much production work has been halted for two years are there fewer films for true false this year compared to past years yeah there will be 30 feature films which is a little less than a normal year for us plus five shorts programs so for those people who typically try to see 15 films you'll still have that opportunity to do that you'll just be choosing from a slightly smaller number of films so when we look at capacity or screenings over the whole fest there's still the same number as there normally is there's just a fewer films to choose from and i think everybody will be really happy with the films that we got they are phenomenal this year we kind of made a commitment for our staff to be able to watch more of those films because our programming team is very familiar with them they've watched every one of them but some people on staff feel like they can't speak to the films because we don't really get to see them and so this year we've made a commitment to watching those on Mondays and it's blowing me away it's just every film we watch we're like oh my god this is so incredible and I am really proud of this programming team even though it's like they're they know they're working with a smaller number but the quality is just gonna blow everybody away well the films are going to be announced on February the 7th which is next Tuesday so I won't ask you to reveal any specific confidences but maybe you could give us some vague non-specific appetite wetting <laughs> info about what is coming Yeah, I mean, if you followed Sundance at all, and the documentary films that were winning out of Sundance, you're going to see some of those on the list, which is always I know Sundance was virtual this year. And so you could have access them. But we think watching them at True False is always going to be the better experience. The filmmakers will be here. The True Vision Award that we give to a director who's in their mid career is somebody who has been at the fest before and people will be very excited to see them returning. And we're bringing again, having our True Life Fund film 
it's a very interesting film to pick because we're trying to see what's going to pull at the heartstrings of everybody to support these subjects. And we found the right film this year that's going to speak to everybody. And I'm very excited. There's a, I would say probably because our artistic director is European, there's a little bit more international films than we've seen in the past. And I think that's a real positive, the stuff that they've picked. Um, the other thing that I feel like some people forget about is our synapses program, which is the film adjacent stuff. And the stuff that Robin Robinson, our new programmer for that picked out is amazing. You know, that used to be virtual reality and that you could only experience that at a fest. Well, now people have virtual reality in their home. And so we have challenged her even more to create these experiences that you, you know, not sitting in a film, but the same feeling of, getting entertainment and having your the molecules in your brain rearranged through these synapses. And she has stepped up to the challenge for sure. Of course, one of the most awesome components of True False is the attendance of so many directors and the chance for audiences to really engage with the filmmaking process through the directors. And sometimes, very excitingly, with the subjects in the documentaries, will we be seeing a difference in that aspect of the fest this year just because of limitations of travel? Yeah, there's a few filmmakers who were still waiting on their visa. Um, typically, our wonderful senators in Missouri will step up and um, call the embassies in their countries and say, move this person along. But even that is not working because everybody's so backed up because of COVID. And so we'll see a few more Zooms this year than we would prefer, but you'll still get to interact with the filmmaker in that setting, which I think is better than them not being engaged at all. But there's still plenty of people coming, um, already have subjects lined up from some films that are in America, which makes it a little easier for travel right now. And so you're still going to get that taste of directors sitting at tellers next to you or a subject walking down the street and running into them. And so that experience will feel the same with just a couple added zooms. And of course, it wouldn't be true false without two other components, the buskers and the art. Usually, again, you have musicians flying in from across the country. Tell us how the music will look this year. Yeah, so that is, um, I would say it's a little bit more regional than, say, 2020 or 2019, but we still have people coming from all over. There's several acts that will seem familiar, people who are true false, I don't know, the traditions or <laughs> keeps, you know, we have to have them here. And then because we do have a new music director, we're going to be seeing, I think people will see a little bit different taste coming out because of what Eric's been doing. And so you're still going to get great openers before every single film and showcases in kind of weird places around Columbia for you to, to see music. And I think people will be really pleasantly surprised with music. And I hope over the next few years, we just continue to see that program grow and grow because it's unique, you know, outside of South by, which is, it's a film fest, but it's also a music fest. Um, we're kind of one of the only places that do that. Huh. That is interesting. Before we close, are there any other nuggets that you would like to impart at this point in time? I feel sure that we will be talking multiple times over the next four to five yes. weeks, but <laughs> is there anything else right now you'd like people to know? Keep an eye out on the website. We're Over the next few weeks, we're announcing all of the curation, and I think people will be really excited. So pay attention to our newsletter and website, and it's happening. And you need volunteers. 
Yes, we do. We need volunteers and we are providing KN95 masks for each of our volunteers and requiring them to be up to date on their vaccinations. And there's plenty of opportunities to do outside work for volunteering also. So working the parade or helping with set up breakdown when you're setting up the art projects outside. So if being indoors in a venue is not for you, there's plenty of opportunities to do outside work with us. Well, this year's True False Film Fest runs from March the 3rd through the 6th. The film lineup will be announced on February the 7th and some pass holders will be able to start reserving their places from February the 11th. There are health protocols and mandates in place this year and you can find out all about those on the website at truefalse.org. And Barbie Banks, thanks to everyone at True False and Ragtag for persevering through these complicated times. <laughs> and thanks for coming on the show to give us an update. Yeah, thank you so much. As I well remember, breathing new life into a decades-old arts organization takes a lot of energy, even more so when your organization's art form is one which is often perceived as being out of touch and not appealing to younger generations, which is why I am always intrigued and delighted to see the ideas that the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's executive director, Trent Rash, and his creative team come up with to entice younger and more diverse audiences into the world of classical music. It is an uphill battle for sure, but Trent Rash has pulled together a team of dynamic and creative thinkers who are determined to change minds. And Trent is our next guest this evening. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts, Trent. Hello, so glad to be here. You know, it is so hard changing minds, especially when you're asking people to consider something that they have a preconceived, if false, idea about. And I'm curious about your own journey with classical music. Was it always in your life or was it something that you came to appreciate later on? Oh, that's a great question. No, actually, I am from an area of the state of Missouri that I would call part of the symphonic desert, meaning that I didn't grow up with an orchestra even in my school. So symphonic music wasn't really a part of my life until, this is crazy, um, I watched the movie Forrest Gump. And I think it's Alan Silvestri, he did the score for that. And there's a beautiful piece in there. And everyone who hears it thinks of the feather floating down from the sky. But I would listen to that piece over and over my senior year of high school, and even sometimes conduct it. So I had started to really um, understand the power of symphonic music through movie music was sort of my gateway into it. And then I went to college and studied music and, of course, then was introduced to so many different kinds of symphonic music. What do you love about classical music? What I love about it is sort of how I read a book um, – Music creates symbols that allow me to create my own visuals in my mind, sort of like the words do in a book. And so I can be listening to a piece of music and it can evoke a lot of feelings, but I get to sort of create the own visual story of what's happening, you know, in my mind. And I find that really lovely. Yeah, I love the idea of music as a kind of a soundscape where you get to make your own journey. Absolutely. For many orchestral organizations, it has taken the events of the past two years, the global pandemic and the call for more equality of opportunity and programming across all of the arts, not just classical music, for them, those organizations to fully grasp the need for profound change in how they program, who they program, who performs 
and how they make themselves relatable to younger and more diverse audiences. And it's an overwhelmingly huge task across all of the arts, plus pandemic changing everything. How is the Missouri Symphony Orchestra tackling such exciting and yet also challenging times? You know, I think that um, one of the things that, that we have been trying to do is instead of racking our brain about how we can get people to come to the theater is how can we instead take music to people. And one of the ways that we did that after the pandemic had been going on for, you know, a, a good six to eight months was our Preludes at the Pubs program. And we were like, how can we bring music maybe to places that it seems unexpected? And um, that just turned out to be such a great success that that inspired a lot of other ways that we are trying to bring music to people where they are. And so to that end of attracting new and younger audiences, you are launching a new event on February the 14th called Mosey on the Rocks, which has a lot of DNA with preludes at the pub. <laughs> Tell us about that and the maybe the conversations you had with your team about why and how you think this will generate a new audience for the Missouri Symphony Orchestra. Sure. So Preludes at the Pubs is a real great gateway because it's just you get to come, you can have some cocktails, you can socialize with friends while you're listening to music in the background. With Mosey on the Rocks, music becomes really one of the highlights or the centerpiece of the activity because we will have our Dr. Ashley Pribble, our Director of Education Outreach, she will be there and she will actually be giving a short lecture on pieces of music that are going to be creatively tied to custom cocktails. So we're taking it one step further where we're actually going to start talking about what does this piece mean? What is its historical context? Where does it come from? What was going on in that time period? And so um, hopefully we're going to start opening people's minds even further to how interesting this music can be and, and some of the wonderful stories that come from the background of each of the pieces. So explain to me a little bit about what Dr. Pribble is going to be looking for in the drinks that will guide her musical choice. And what comes first? Is it the cocktails and the music or is it the music and then the cocktails? That is a great question. We're still trying to figure out. I know that, <laughs> that her and our first mixologist, Van Hoxby from Dogmaster Distillery, they are working that out right now. I think she would love for the cocktail to come first because I think she finds that a big challenge. Now, he would sometimes like the music to come first. So I think that they have finally come to sort of a, a middle ground where it's going to be maybe half and half. <laughs> um, but it's it. I'm, I'm very interested. I honestly don't know. It's even a surprise to me yet what the pieces are and what the cocktails are. They're keeping that a secret from me as well. But to give an example, there's a piece by... Um, Philip Glass called Einstein on the Beach. And I could see that pairing really well with sex on the beach, you know, so it's going to be something similar to that, where maybe the similarity could be in the title, maybe it could be in the story behind the music, maybe it's from the composer themselves. So I'm really excited to see how they come up with these uh, collaborations. And with 250 plus years of classical music to choose from, are you giving any guidance such as, well, let's choose a work from each century or let's have two female and two male composers or let's have at least three non-white composers? Like, is there any extra guidance behind the scenes? Knowing Dr. Pribble, yes, she will try to be as diverse as possible. She is definitely a huge champion of newer music and in relation to where that music came from. So I could suspect that she might choose a composer um, let's just say Beethoven, for example, but then might choose someone from the modern day era that maybe is a contemporary of Beethoven or has a lot of influence from him just to show people that those connections live on, but how they live on through different, more diverse people. Last 
fall, I think it was, I went to a fabulous talk by the violinist Scott Yu, who gave a detailed, but for those of us not steeped in the classical music world, a pretty easy to understand look at what was happening musically in the Brahms piano trios. And it was so compelling, we were all on the edge of our seat. And I thought that was really interesting, that it wasn't just their history of Brahms, which, you know, is interesting in and of itself and his relationship with Clara Schumann and all of that. But it was really, here's what you're hearing. Here's what is so clever about this music. Will Dr. Pribble be including musical components or more? is it more about the history and the time of a piece of music? No, I do think that she will be including some of those critical listening analysis examples as well so that people can sometimes you know if, if you're newer to the music or you feel like you don't get the music I think she's going to help give you some ways that you can listen a little more critically um, which will make it fun so I do think that there'll be some easter eggs like that in this event marvelous those are very exciting it's a pretty pricey night out it's 60 dollars for a ticket or 100 for a couple which does include all your drinks and some snacks but it does keep classical music in that pricey echelon and that's kind of part of its reputation and challenge how do we overcome that idea that classical music is a is something that only rich people can do Right. Yeah, I know this. This is um, in some ways we're using this as a. this is definitely one of our fundraising events. I know a lot of things that we're looking at for this summer is we're creating a, a tier three pricing that will be a lower pricing than even last year. So that always certain rows are the same price that is relatively economical for a lot of different people or allow them to consider coming. We also, you know, try to, to do a lot of partnerships with groups and people. Um, and, and as we can, you know, we, we try to give comp tickets out to, to people that we'd love to have the opportunity to come and, and to be involved. So besides Mosey on the Rocks, you also have another event coming up on February the 12th, so a couple of days earlier, and that's at the Missouri Theatre when the Giuliani Ensemble, nothing to do with Rudy, different spelling, (laughs) (laughs) when the Giuliani Ensemble visit from Chicago for one night only. Tell us a little bit about the Giuliani Ensemble. Yes, we are very excited. So it's a very interesting in the fact that it's a family business, sort of like Mozart and his sister and his father. This is a mother and her son and her daughter. And Julian and Anita Grafe are the son and daughter. They actually play with us in the summer. Anita plays cello and Julian plays viola. And their mother, Emily, plays the, the flute. And so it's a violin, cello, flute trio. They're based in Chicago. And they are very much into outreach. And so I'm really, their concert is on the 12th, but they actually will be doing a day of outreach on the 11th through Columbia Public Schools and the School of Music at Mizzou. So I'm excited that we get to allow them to get back in classrooms and then anyone who wants can attend their concert the next day that evening. So what will the program be for that concert on the 12th? That program is Roussel's Trio for Flute, Viola and Cello, Haydn's London Trio in G Major, uh, Walkier's Grand Trio for Flute, Violin, and Cello, Stamitz's Trio in G Major, and Beethoven's Serenade for Flute, Violin, and Viola. Oh, that's quite a nice cross-section of music. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, very much so. I'm very much looking forward to that diverse group of music. When you look around the country at other symphony orchestras in smaller cities like Columbia, what engagement ideas are you hearing about that are really working with younger generations? 
honestly, one of the things and one of the things that we're going to start looking at is really two things. One is new music, engaging new music, and also just in general American music. A lot of young people will know, for instance, Aaron Copeland. And then secondly, one of the ways that we're engaging at least younger musicians is we have this young artist concerto competition where we eventually invite the winner to come perform with the symphony. But we get a lot of applicants from that that get to know, you know, what we're doing and in turn gives them an opportunity to to see what it would be like to play with professional orchestra. Looking a little farther out, I know you are planning a summer of the conductor. I know it's a long way away yet. Is there anything you can share with us yet about that? Will it be a, a hot summer night style of program? The name Hot Summer Nights is officially retiring. We won't have a new name yet, but essentially this one's going to be tagged the Summer of the Conductors. We will probably have at least four different conductors, if not more. And the format will be very similar to um, what Hot Summer Nights was. There will be a few things missing. I think we'll see some different kind of programming. We're going to leave it to the guest conductors as to what they might program for a Masterworks concert. So I'm interested to see what that will be. We still will have a, an evening of Broadway to close off the concert. We're really excited to bring back our now annual Juneteenth concert. And I think there'll be some other wonderful surprises as well. Great. We can visit about that nearer the time. It's a little ways away yet. So whether you are a fan of classical music or curious about how it pairs with cocktails, there are two Missouri Symphony Orchestra events coming up in the next couple of weeks. The Giuliani Ensemble at the Missouri Theatre on Saturday the 12th and Mosey on the Rocks at Dogmaster Distillery on Monday, February the 14th. So happy Valentine's Day to everybody that goes to that. You can find out more by visiting themosey.org and Trent Resch. Thanks for the work you are doing to change how we are are able to engage with classical music and for taking time to chat today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, theatre director and actor Richard Harris, Rectech Film Society's co-director Barbie Banks, and the executive director of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, Trent Rash. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can connect with more of her music via Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!